You're listening to episode number 19 of Widowcast with Joanne Philomena from Joanne the Life Coach. Welcome back, listeners. This week I have another great interview episode to share. Sarah Joyce Michelle's story is so special because she shares what she discovered to be delayed grief. Before we get into the interview, I ask that you pause me a moment and go into iTunes and leave a review for Widowcast. I know it takes extra effort to go into iTunes and search the podcast again in iTunes, so you can click on rating and reviews to leave a review. But this is so special because it's how this podcast will move up in iTunes so others can find it and subscribe. Those of you who have recommended Widowcast to friends, I am so appreciative. So without any further ado, here is Sarah Joyce Michelle and her story. Today, I'm really happy to have um, another widow joining me for interview. This is Sarah Joyce Michelle, who became widowed in her early 50s, and she's going to share her journey with us today. Welcome to Widowcast. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> I really am <laughs> and share this. I know that there's a lot of us out there. <laughs> There are, there are. And the more stories we share, um, I think others just really connect with it, find inspiration, find encouragement mm -hmm. in it. Now, how long ago did you lose your spouse? In August of 2013. I'm, I'm sorry, 2003. 2003. Okay. Okay. So it's about 13 years ago. Is that yeah, right? It'll be 13 years this August. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so do you want to go ahead and let us know what happened that you became widowed and a little bit of background about, you know, your relationship? I believe your spouse's name is Tom. That's right, Tom. Yeah, he was um, he was diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer. I think it was it was 1992. Um, and it, I was I think I was 41 years old at the time. And um, just that diagnosis was quite frightening. And this was like this was like 24 years ago. So even what they know today about cancer is different than what they knew back then. And um, anyway, so he went through the surgery, and um, when the surgery was completed, his doctor actually told me at that time that the prostate, the cancer had was outside of his prostate gland, and that it was just a matter of time before it would perhaps move to some other area of his body. So um, he actually survived quite well for about the next nine years. He was able to live a pretty full and active life. And then in the last two years, um, his health went considerably downhill um, because, the because the cancer had metastasized to his bones and things like that. Right. And um, I would just say for those, you know, for pretty much those 11 years, um, part of me lived a little bit in a sense of denial that he was going to live forever. All right. That he wasn't yep. going to die. And there was a part of me that, um, I went to every single doctor appointment with him, doctor appointment. And, um, every time he had a test, every time he had, you know, an MRI, every time I would sit at home or wherever I was at work and find myself wondering when the, the shoe was going to drop, 
you know, when it was going to show up somewhere. And so um, we, we had, during that time, I think I mentioned this to you before. I mean, those first nine years, we just went ahead and did our best to live our life the best way we could. He actually started rowing, which is something I had never done. And um, I started rowing and we fell madly in love with that and started an organization to help older people learn to row and race, things like that. So that part of that part of our life was pretty good. And then when the cancer spread, it was I was his 24 hour, seven day a week caregiver and um, things changed drastically. But that's kind of the background. He was a very he was always a very healthy. You know, that was the other thing. He was always a very healthy man, um, very active um, looked, he was almost 19 years older than I was, but looked pretty much my age or younger, I would say sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds like he was pretty active. Yeah. Like almost right up to when he started that decline. I yeah. mean, he had that diagnosis and you took up rowing right. together and really got into it, which I think how fantastic is that? Right. Um, so, and I know the difficulty of this, Jim was a lot older than I was. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of always the known between us that he would go before I would. Mm -hmm. Um, And we even joked about it. You know, he would tell me, I think I'm dying. And I would say, Oh, promises, promises. (laughs) (laughs) Because he always thought he was dying. He was a New Yorker. It was like being married to Woody Allen. You know, (laughs) he was always dying of something. If he had a sniffle, it was, you know, the end of the world. Um, But still, even though you mentally prepare, and I know you were probably thinking you were mentally prepared because you knew about the cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, you had the decline. He was older. Did you feel prepared when it finally came, when the time finally came? You know, um, on a conscious level, I think I really believed I was. All right. Mm-hmm. You know, when it happened, um, I was right there with him. Um, there were other members of the family in the room with him. And I really thought I was. I thought, you know, I'm ready for, I'm ready for this. And, um, and then I had always, you know, you may have joked about, you know, joked with Jim, but I, I told him that I felt that he was a much, I always felt that he was such a vibrant person that I would say to him, I want to build a legacy for you. And I, I, would, I said that even when I was younger, even before this ever occurred. And so after he passed away, I, um, I went to breakfast one day after rowing with a bunch of rowing friends and they said, we need to do something. We need to do something. We need to have an event. We need to do whatever. And the short version of that is I ended up, um, founding a nonprofit that was dedicated to hospice and palliative care and his memory because hospice was a lifesaver to me during the last Mm -hmm. years of his life. Um, and I also have experience with hospice with my father and my sister and some other members of my family as well. So we started this, we, we decided to hold a regatta for just old people to row in every year and we would raise money. And I threw myself into that foot hook, line and sinker, I would say for pretty much eight years and raised money and helped build an inpatient hospice and did all that stuff. But through that process, I would say probably about the, about three years in, maybe three and a half years in, I was talking to my younger sister who at the time was a hospice nurse and we we're having a normal conversation and I just burst out crying. And she said, what is wrong with you? And I said, you know, I don't know. 
I said, I could be walking down the street. I said, I can be in my car. I said, I can be sitting here in my kitchen. And all of a sudden I start crying and I have no idea why. I have no idea why. I said, I don't, I don't even associate it with anything. And at that point, she said to me, um, I don't do the grief thing is what she said to me. I take care of the patients. <laughs> and right. she said, um, but you need to contact your old social worker and see if you can't get some help. She said, something's going on here. So I did. And um, Tom's social worker was, she and I became very good friends. And she sat me down and said, you're, going, you're experiencing what we call delayed grief. And I'm not the least bit surprised. And I looked at her and I said, why do you say that? She said, because I watched you. I watched you throw yourself. I watched you through those last couple of years of his illness. I watched you throw yourself into something totally different. It was almost my way of keeping him alive, if that makes any sense. You know? Oh, it makes absolute <laughs> sense to me. <laughs> you know, as long as I yeah. had this organization and I had this something to drive, you know, and, um, and I could stay focused on him. And so I, at that point, I actually started doing talk therapy and I did it for about a year and a half, I think almost two years. And it was quite helpful. So it is called delayed grief and it's a, it's a real. That's interesting. That's interesting because you threw yourself into the project, mm -hmm. which was really a way to distract yourself right. from what you were feeling. Mm -hmm. And I get that. I'm really good at distracting myself from feelings. <laughs> and I've learned about that. <laughs> But because you distracted yourself from your feelings, you were three years in, going on four years in, before the grief started to really hit. And then you were like, what's going on with me? Right. Why am I crying now? I experienced that recently, and I talked about it um, on the anniversary. It was Jim's birthday. We had scattered his ashes last year on his birthday, and I went back to the bridge, and I went to the place that we always had breakfast together. Mm -hmm. And I did all that, and I was really fine with it, and it's what I wanted to do for that day. Mm -hmm. And I... I did really well with it until I got home. I opened up the side door and walked into my kitchen and just started bawling mm -hmm. and thought, why am I crying oh, no. now? <laughs> wow. Why am I crying now? Why didn't I cry when I was sitting at the bridge where I scattered his ashes, you right. know, leaving flowers there? We can have that kind of delayed reaction, especially if you throw yourself into a project. And now that project, that was... Um, the Hutch Project, is that is it still an ongoing thing? No, well, no, it's not. I actually, okay. um, it, well, I, it stayed in effect for eight years. We, um, yeah. we actually did, we didn't, we didn't build the whole inpatient hospice unit, but we initiated it and donated a lot of money to allow that to happen. And That's um, incredible. Because inpatient hospices, I could have a whole other conversation about that, are just very, very important in this world. So, mm -hmm. um so no, it's not. Um, it was, he, he went, his nickname was Hutch and that's why it was called the Hutch project, you know? Yeah. So, but no, it's not, but it was a good experience. I'm happy I did it. <laughs> and I've learned a lot since. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you had mentioned to me before, and you know how much I love this. You were looking back at his illness and saying that you could see in hindsight, the gift in that time. Yes. Yes. You know, it's, it's, um, we were always, he was, you know, Tom was my, he wasn't just my husband. He was my best friend. He was my confidant. He was my cheerleader. He was so many things. And I believe I was the same for him, but I think that because when I first met him, 
I didn't realize he was 19 years older than I was until I asked. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then I realized. But I think because I was so much younger that um, because I met him when I was, I think, 25, 24, something like that. You know, I was pretty young. And I think that I always sort of looked up to him and um, thought that he was wiser and, you know, just Mm -hmm. knew more about the world than I did. And um, eventually you sort of catch up. But as through that illness, um, we had differing opinions about what avenue to take. Um, but it didn't matter. It just seemed like through that process, we got much, much closer than we had ever been. And from my perspective, to think that I could have gotten any closer to him than I was before his illness was pretty extraordinary to me. Mm-hmm. Um, he shared a lot as he got this last couple of years, as he knew, I mean, it became very evident that he was not going to survive. And um, he he came to share things with me that I think were quite vulnerable for him that he may have shared earlier, but didn't for some, you know, it's not so much, I don't want to use that term macho man kind of thing, but you know, men sometimes don't want to share their vulnerability. And in the end he really did. And he, he did things that I never anticipated that he would do with his children. He had conversations, um, And he had lots of conversations with me, too. And he would sit me down and say, now, when I'm not here, I want to make sure that you have X, Y, and Z, you know. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I want to know what you want, you know. And I don't think that we ever would have had those conversations. It was twofold for me. I think it was just because we, we had to be open with one another because he wasn't open with anyone else. And I didn't really talk to anyone else about it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked to each other. So that so I really feel like we got to know each other much better and um our bond was much stronger because of his illness. It's crazy amazing. as crazy as that sounds. But Yeah. So that's an amazing that really was a gift in hindsight to you and a gift to him too. Yeah. Because, you know, he knew that the end was coming. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. As you said, it became it became more and more evident that it wasn't something he was going to survive. Mm-hmm. So in having that insight, then that is such a gift mm-hmm. that he had a chance to do some of the things he wanted to do. Allowed you to prepare. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's that's an amazing gift. Mm-hmm. You know, with Jim being older, we knew he would go before I did, but we didn't know when that was. So when he suddenly died, it was pretty unexpected. Mm-hmm. But in hindsight, looking back at it, it's almost like on some subconscious level, he knew mm-hmm. because there were things he did in the last few days leading up to that massive uh-huh. heart attack that we're just so telling. I mean, it was spooky. Mm -hmm. It was spooky. He had sent a video to all his friends the night before, um, that was Joe Cocker singing. I get by with a little help from my friends. Uh And it was like a final goodbye to them. Mm -hmm. You know, it was stunning. Um, so lots of things like that. You had that gift. And I think it's so beautiful that you can look back on that time in hindsight Mm -hmm. and see it as a gift that you were both able to become so much closer to each other during that time. 
Um, I love it that you set up the regatta for him, which, uh, you know, in his memory to create that legacy and to create the um, money to start getting the inpatient hospice going. Now, I know that you said it was like three, four years in that you started to cry, and now you're about 10 years out from that. So how are you doing with that now? That That's like a post-traumatic stress disorder <laughs> that you develop. And I think every widow develops that on some level where you, there is a period of being in shock mm-hmm. after they pass away, and you can, you know, as I'm discovering, I'm about 15 months out now from being widowed and I'm discovering, you know, that crying just at the drop of a hat sometimes. So how are you now? You know, now I, now um, what is true of me is that I think that process of getting to know each other better um, also allows me now to actually, and this sounds a little odd, but I actually can feel his presence and I know that, um, you know, I do believe that there is no real separation from those that are in spirit. I really don't. I believe that. And I, I feel as if I can rely on him and I can talk to him and I can, I can have some comfort in that um, because we always had great conversations, you know. And so that conversation doesn't have to stop because he's not physically here with me. So I think mm-hmm. that that's one, that's one step. And I will say that what I've learned about this whole grieving process, there's a couple of things because yes, there's the shock, there's the loneliness. And I also think there is a period at which quite frankly, I was angry with him. Mm. I was mad, you know, mad that he left, mad that he left. Yeah. You know, and I, and I don't think that's unusual. In fact, I think that that's okay to be mad, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that um, the grieving process for me is just so unique to each person. There's not a one size fits all kind of answer to that. You know, friends that would say to me, you know, it should be okay for you now. It's like, how would you know if it's okay for me now? Yeah. How would you know that? You know, um, and because I would, I will still say that I occasionally still find myself crying. Maybe it's on his birthday, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Or um, yep. even sometimes like on Father's Day, you know, things like that. Not the same way it was before. But um, but I think the most important thing is that I now know that I can have a conversation. I can sit and talk with him and I can find comfort in that. So, yeah. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So I don't know that it ever, I'm not sure if it ever completes for me. I don't know that it's complete, complete, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And I don't think. I don't know that we get it completed. It's not like something that you should wrap up in a nice little red bow, you know, (laughs) and and store away. I think it's just an ongoing process and it just becomes part of who we are. Mm -hmm. I think we often come through it stronger than we ever expected to be. Um, You know, we start to find our person, our own personal strength through the process. And it's hard to know that in the, you know, the early days of being widowed because you don't feel strong. No, you don't. All. No, you don't. You, know, you don't feel strong at all. But really, there is an inner strength that you start pulling from. Well, I think that that's, that's really true. I think that my, you know, it's been, you know, well, it's been 13 years, you know, pretty much 13 years in total. But that process 
really has. I mean, it's like I've come to a place because when he was alive for many years, I felt like I couldn't really, I wouldn't really be able to be fooling myself without his physical support. Mm-hmm. Okay. And encouragement. Mm-hmm. And what I have come to know is that I am my own person and I can be, and I, and I do have my own inner strength and that inner right. strength is, is partially comes from me, but it also comes from him and our relationship that that has, yeah. that that has fed my personal strength. That has, that's a foundation for the strength I have. So isn't that amazing? Yeah. Because I feel that way, too. There's a lot of times that I look back and I know that just having been married to Jim and, you know, over 20 years with him, Mm -hmm. that he being with him helped make me a stronger person. He made me a better person, Mm -hmm. exactly, a stronger person. He made me more independent. I mean, he would push my buttons. He would know (laughs) if if I needed to step up for something and I was waffling and he would say, oh, you're such a wimp, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you're such a wimp. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would, of course, respond to that. Right. So. You know, just because they pass on, that doesn't go away. Right. That not. process, that the fact that they made you a better person, you continue to be that better person even right. after they're gone right. and, and can tap into that. If you could go back 13 years and tell yourself something, what would you want to tell yourself before he passed away, or maybe when he did pass away, if you could go back to the first day that you were sitting there dealing with the idea that he was gone right. and having to set up all of the services and reach out to them, do all that stuff, what would you go back and tell yourself? You know, the first thing that comes to mind is that I would tell myself that our connection is eternal. You know, I don't, I, and I don't, because it is eternal. It doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stop because he's not physically here. You know, it's similar to, um, you know, my parents when I was, I don't know, gosh, when I was in college, I didn't get married right out of college and all my older sisters did. And my parents sat me down one night and said something to me like, um, we, we, think we're, we think that we set a bad example for you because you're not getting married right away. And this was back in the, you know, I don't know, late 60s, early 70s when you're yeah. supposed to get married anyway. And I remember saying to the men, um, you know, you couldn't be farther from the truth. I look at the two of you and you are each other's best friend. I can see that you could be on opposite sides of the planet. And if you knew that the other one needed you, you'd do your darndest to be there for them. You know, yeah. you you'd do whatever you could to be there. And I said, that's what I'm looking for. And um, And when I found Tom, that's what I found. But when he passed away, I don't think I really... I, that wasn't in my that wasn't in the forefront of my conscious awareness. And when you ask me what would I tell myself now or what would I say, it would be to know that that connection is just like that, that just because because that because we spent we didn't live in the same city all the time. I worked in a different city during the week. Do you know what I mean? And we we did have mm-hmm. that kind of relationship. That connection is eternal. That connection is always there. And I think that that's really hard in the moment when they're not there to reach over and touch, or they're not there to, you know, tap on the shoulder and say, Hey, can you give me some advice or whatever it is, you know, but it's that there is an eternal connection and it doesn't end because they're physically not in your presence. 
That's awesome. And it's awesome that 13 years out, you still sense that and feel that. Mm -hmm. Because I felt that, I think, right away after he passed away, um, Jim and I had some pretty strong beliefs. But there's a fear of losing touch with that. Yes. And I think as widows go, you know, over time, there becomes that that thing like, you know, am I going to forget how he smelled? As I oh, get yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. away from it, am I going to forget how he sounded? Am I going to forget? And you don't want to forget. You want to hold those things precious. Right. Um, as well as the feeling that, you know, he's just there, just on the other side of the curtain, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and I can talk to him and I do. And I'm always relieved when I hear other widows say they talk to their um dead husbands because <laughs> I, I in the early days I used to think is this normal am I crazy that I walk around here talking to Jim you right, know right. <laughs> but, but um yeah and we still need that and it's beautiful to know that you know 13 years out you still have that which means 13 years out I can still have that too yeah, you can so, yeah so I love that. Well, I so thank you for sharing your story with me today and with all the listeners to the podcast, because like I said, every story that's shared, every different story that's shared, there's going to be a widow out there that really connects with it because she'll be, oh, yeah, that was my experience. And it makes her know that she's okay. Whatever she's experiencing is okay because we all experience it a little differently. Sometimes we might experience it a lot differently. You might think there's something wrong with you, like, oh, I'm not a normal widow. Well, (laughs) there are no normal widows. I was just going to say, what is normal? Okay. (laughs) I know, I know. There are no normal widows. And we all experience. So whatever you experience, it's your experience. It's your journey. Um, And that's why I'm so delighted to have other widows join me on this podcast to share their story, to just get all the different versions out there. I think it's remarkable what you did after becoming a widow, what you've accomplished is remarkable. I really have to hand it to you. And um, yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm just happy to be here and happy to share. And because I do know that our own, you know, each of our stories is unique and each of mm-hmm. our journeys is unique Um, and that I think it's important to know that we are okay in the process, you know, regardless of what we experience, it's really all okay. Oh, I love that. I love that. Let's wrap it up on that note so we can all like hug that to us and take it with us. Thank you so much, Sarah. Okay. Thank you, Joanne. I appreciate it. Isn't Sarah Joyce a remarkable lady? I so love that she found a way to not only honor her husband, but to give back to hospice. She saw a need that was not being addressed by hospice for inpatient hospice and took it on to raise money to build that home for inpatient hospice care. Then she bravely shared with us how she became so 100% focused on that. Her own grieving process was put on hold, so to speak, and she was not fully able to experience that grief until three to four years later. This is indeed a form of post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's rarely recognized for widows. 
Sarah Joyce mentioned hospice, and I want to make sure all of you are aware that the Hospice Foundation of America has grief support groups in addition to groups to support caregivers of those with terminal illnesses. Even if you did not require the services of hospice, if you feel it would benefit you to attend a weekly group in your local area, don't hesitate to reach out to them. Even if you became a widow through sudden unexpected death, most of their grief support groups are indeed open to all of us. With this podcast, I hope to share validation for you of the widow experience and even offer suggestions for coping. But going to a support group can add that experience of simply getting out each week and connecting with others. Maybe this is for you, maybe it's not. Just be aware, it is available. You can check out hospicefoundation.org online to see if there's something local to you. Oh, and I'm, I'm not paid by hospice to share this. <laughs> this is just really good information to share for all of you. So thank you so much for listening today. You can find me at joanne at joannethelifecoach.com. That's my email. And my website is at joannethelifecoach.com. I always love hearing from all of you. It's what makes doing this so very worth it. So now get outside. Go find some small joy in your life today. Until next time. 